Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. In this episode, Bridging our eight basic needs with the workplace, we are joined by Dr. Dustin Jackson, an organizational psychologist, and Chris Lapata, a BHDP workplace client leader. Dustin and Chris examine these biological needs and how leaders can reference these needs as employees reconnect to the workplace. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP, and I'll let our guests introduce themselves further. Dustin, would you introduce yourself, let people know who you are and what you do, sir? Absolutely. My name is Dustin Jackson. I'm an organizational psychologist. I have a PhD in organizational psychology. And it's been my lifelong goal to understand more about what's going on in the brains of people. So in addition to my PhD, I've got certificates in neuroscience from Harvard. And I've constantly wanted to learn more and more about what's going on in the brains of people. I even have a certificate in uh, neuroimaging from Johns Hopkins. So when I'm looking at some of these studies, I can help interpret for myself what they mean. So I'm constantly seeking new ways to translate academic research findings into actionable strategic organizational advantages. Uh, I've created a neuroscience challenges of organizational change program. Uh, I've been a management consultant for about 14 years. I'm also a United States Marine Corps veteran and proud father of two amazing kids. And thank you for your service. And then our other guest today, Chris Lapata, would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Thank you, Brian. Uh, yes, I'm Chris Lapata. I'm a client leader with BHDP Architecture. I'm based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I spend my time engaging with our clients as they look at their real estate portfolio, as they look at how space is going to be designed to drive to key behaviors that lead to uh, organizational objectives and helping them to meet goals. Really excited about this conversation because I've always known that that space plays a huge role in in, in driving behaviors and the way people perceive spaces when they enter them. Yeah, and this is going to be an interesting conversation because I know a lot of organizations are talking about when they do bring people back to work, you know, have the needs changed of what draws people back in. So we thought maybe we could start there and start our what are the needs that people have? So, Dustin, would you mind explaining to us? We understand that there's eight biological needs. Is that right? You want to expand on that a little bit more? Absolutely. So. We are born with eight innate survival needs or biological needs, or as I like to call them, primal needs. Now, these needs help drive our brains towards seeking out, without our conscious awareness, survival. And these are things that we're willing to achieve at any cost because they do mean survival to us. Keep in mind that the way our brain works, a majority of our brain is dedicated towards this unconscious need for survival. Part of the brain controls breathing and heartbeat. Part of the brain controls emotions, which we don't have control over. It has control over us. And these eight biological needs live in that area of the brain, which means that these are subconscious and they subconsciously influence our behaviors, attitudes, and decisions, even in the workplace. Let's talk about what these eight needs are real quick. That would be great, yeah. First Take is acceptance, there. social approval of others around you. Next is connectedness, where we feel close to families, friends, anyone in our immediate circle. The next one is contentment, which means we're comfortable with ourselves and with the environment around us. The next one's freedom, which is like free from imprisonment or free from pain, free from fear, 
free from danger. The next one's gratification, where we enjoy the activities that we're doing or the senses we're experiencing or, or the things that we're consuming like delicious foods. Next one's guardianship. We have an innate need to care for others around us or protect loved ones that are near us. There's the biological need for prestige, which is a, a sense of victoriousness or superiority when it comes to things. And the last one is survival, which is sustaining our lives by any means necessary. So as organizations start returning back to the workplace, the topic that you talked about earlier, it's going to be vitally important to start considering these different eight biological needs that we have and address these for their people. So if an employee perceives a lack in any one of these areas, the neurological issue is this, is it could trigger an alarm bell in their brain which triggers the fight or flight response in the employee. So for example, people will need to believe that their survival is being considered in the workplace through sanitation, uh, distancing, meeting attendee reduction. They'll also need to feel comfortable in the environment and the people around them. They'll be reuniting with what I call their work tribe. So it's really important that organizations take the opportunity to help properly transition their staff back into the workplace while meeting these eight subconscious primal needs of their people for survival and safety. Now, it's important you take these steps, but how do we let our employees know that we're doing these steps? It could be communicated to them, emails, posters, whatever that is. You can use gamification, which is very popular these days, where it's some kind of game where employees could help discover and see the steps that are taken or even maybe a welcome back kind of event that's staged to walk employees through the new safety measures, et cetera. So the eight, there's acceptance, connectedness, uh, contentment, freedom, gratification, uh, guardianship, prestige, and, and survival. And it, it's interesting because I think, you know, me as a strategist, I like to put things into buckets. And I was imagining this from the social aspect of the workplace. And I would say, you know, you could draw a line to community as being part of acceptance and connectedness and maybe autonomy, you know, about freedom and gratification. And I'd guess guardianship would be part of community as well, but, and then purpose, right? So people like it when their job means something. So like work can fulfill these needs to a degree. Is that a fair assumption or did I oversimplify? No, that's, that's a very fair assumption. Absolutely. Well, I guess then the next question would be, we've been in this distributed work environment for a lot of workplaces where people aren't in the office for the workplace to satisfy some of these needs. So what do you imagine the impacting effect has been on those biological needs? So the fascinating thing about our eight primal needs is when they're not being met, we find other ways to meet them. These changes that we've been going through with the distributed work really have had some impact on their eight biological needs. So people have taken those and transformed them to other areas. So for example, if we don't feel the need for prestige of being met at work anymore, we look to things like our hobbies or our home life, or we make up stories in our heads uh, to help fulfill that need by us believing those stories. People have transitioned their biological needs from work where they received them to more of their home life where they received them. Where they really have had a challenge, though, isn't the biological needs. In addition to the eight biological needs, there's 11 cerebral needs or conscious needs. These are 11 additional needs that we learn as we grow up. 
Now, these have been severely impacted when it comes to the distributed work. And these 11 learned needs, they're being informed, cleanliness, convenience, curiosity, dependability, efficiency, expression of self, gain valued resources, getting good deals, scarcity, and social values. Each one of these, we have learned through growing up, one means a little bit more to somebody than others. The easiest one to explain is cleanliness. Some people are very, very cleanly. Some are not cleanly at all. So it's their level of preference for what these are. I'm but, glad you clarified that because I have some uh, boys in their 20s that I would have needed to have a conversation with after this. But sorry. <laughs> Keep going, Dustin. They have a low value on that one. Sure, sure. But we, we have values, which are expectations for each one of these. And these are what have not been getting met. When you start not meeting these 11 learned needs, we start creating a feeling of a lack of control within the individual. Now, when we feel a lack of control, that translates in the brain to anxiety. We feel a threat to ourselves somehow and everything becomes a suspect, not just what that is. Because whether it's the eight biological needs or the 11 learned needs, a lot of it is subconscious level experience within what's going on with us. So the lack of any of these that people have been experiencing are why that there's a lot of issues when it comes to depression, stress, anxiety, or fear with distributed workforce. The thing that we've been hearing the most, obviously, is from, from the CEOs of organizations is their fear that culture is going to be deteriorated through this distributed work model, through people just not coming in. And then there's this lack of connectedness that people are, are experiencing. And I want to touch upon the control things, because I think the control aspect, when we do start to see people come back into the workforce or into the office, what types of, of controls can you actually give to the users of the space? But Dustin, can you elaborate a little bit on that connectedness or that feeling that because people have not been in their tribe or they haven't been in their organization, how is that manifesting itself? Yeah, because it is something that I know we've been discussing with multiple groups and some seem to be doing it really well and some seem to be suffering more. Yeah, I think there's the quantifiable versus the, the qualifiable. I think the, the quantifiable brain of, of leadership knows that there's going to be a certain population that's going to be remote from here on out. And then there's going to be a certain population that absolutely has to be a resident worker in the office. And there's a percentage that's going to be a hybrid. And so how do you kind of address the needs for those hybrids to be in getting connected, connecting to the culture, connected to one another. There's three different important areas that we kind of need to understand when it comes to the connectedness of people to their work and to the organization. And see, the pandemic has had a huge impact on an employee's loss of connectedness, their mission towards purpose, as well as their connection to people relatedness, the relation of, of the people around them. And so with the pandemic has impacted these three different groups in a very distinct way. So we have those people that have lost their jobs, who've completely lost their connectedness, who've lost their purpose, who've lost their people relations. All these have been compromised by the pandemic for that specific group. We have the people that have become the kitchen table warriors who have to experience this connectedness like we never have before in the entire existence of humanity. Their purpose has become a little more fuzzy as their connectedness to the immediate tribe, their 
their relations to people have completely dwindled. And then there are those more essential style workers in the organization who must be in the office with all that potential stress, anxiety that that brings. Now, with all that, they're starting to lose a little more focus on mission accomplishment, on, on, on connecting to their purpose because they're just trying to get their job done. And it's to the sacrifice of connectedness to people, possible people relations. Now, from a neurological perspective, what this really means is all of us are missing basic elements of humanity to some degree. So let's talk real quick about connectedness, purpose, and people relations from a neurological perspective and what that means and, and the fears that these CEOs are having about their work groups. When it comes to connectedness, we have this amazing neurotransmitter called oxytocin. Some people call this the cuddle drug or the love hormone, but it's a neurotransmitter in the brain that makes us feel socially bonded to people or groups like our tribe of coworkers. Things like a handshake, receiving a smile, praise, or feeling like you're in your element, doing your thing, all create this oxytocin in the brain. And over time, as we're lacking those oxytocin boosters in our daily work, we start to experience a disconnect. We start feeling disconnected to our jobs, to our employer, our organization. When it comes to purpose, one of the greatest quotes I've heard about purpose comes from Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor and a neurologist. He says, man's main concern is not to gain pleasure or to avoid pain, but rather to see a meaning in his life. That is why a man is ready to suffer on the condition to be sure that his suffering has meaning. Now, this is kind of important because he addressed the neurological needs for pleasure versus avoiding pain but he's saying that as long as what we're doing has meaning, we're willing to compromise those things, which means we're not doing it for nothing and we're doing it for something greater than ourselves. Purpose focuses our attention on something other than ourselves. Our purpose is our usefulness and our contribution to the work we do. That purpose provides us the story for why we do what we do. This is very important because our brains are designed for stories. We have what's called the default mode network of the brain, which is made up of different parts of the brain that all come together to process information at the same time. The main processing of the default mode network is stories. Your brain thrives on stories and our purpose is the story we tell us. With this change in work, this distributed workforce, the issue that this creates is our purpose story has changed and has possibly even broke down. It's become harder for our brains to process where we fit in our own story, creating an unexplainable disconnect in our brains. And you that know, last one is people relations, the, the, the people part of work. Sure. So when we're talking about people relations, we're talking about the relationship we have with the people we work with. More than just feeling connected. When we have these people relations, we have empathy, altruism, reciprocity, we become more emotionally engaged and driving to our purpose because of those around us. The relationships we develop create the neurotransmitters of dopamine and serotonin in our brains, which give us the ability to be more mentally stable as well as happy. Therefore, when we don't have these people relations, we are not directly having these relations with people that are broken down over these video chats that we're doing. It subconsciously impacts our mental health, our mood, and our attitudes. 
So to wrap up everything I said, when we talk about connectedness, purpose, and the people aspects, all three of these connect directly to those eight primal needs that we discussed that are, we're all biologically born with for survival. That's why it's so important to us, whether we really know it or not. I'm, I'm glad you brought up empathy because I think everything that we do as designers and as a design firm, we, we try to ask good questions. We try to put ourselves in the shoes of the users of the space. We try to be as empathetic as possible. And when we are trying to help organizations drive this change from a current work state to a future work state, we have to be cognizant of what the user is going through. And I've heard from many, many people that we're in a situation now that it's more than just a change management effort. This is like a, a master you know, recovery effort, just a mass, huge disaster recovery. People have gone through things that they never thought they would go through in their lifetime. And one of the key elements to helping organizations get back to where they need to get back to or help the employee get back to where they need to get back to is the preparation of the manager, the frontline manager who has to be empathetic to the employee. What Gallup found is that a lot of managers are not equipped with the emotional quotient, the EQ, to help their workers overcome fear, overcome anger, and, and get back into the work modes that we need to. We, I mean, would you agree, Brian and Dustin, that people's lives have been you know, disrupted so much that getting back into whatever that work mode or flow is going to be, it's going to be a challenge in the physical environment. We, I think we've all adapted to the, the virtual environment but the virtual environment can't support what organizations need moving forward. I absolutely agree with you. One of the biggest stresses that we're gonna see is not continuing on in this distributed work. It's going to be going back to work because that's gonna be filled with anxiety and fear. And you're right, these frontline managers that are working with people, they didn't get promoted to manager because they have a doctorate in organizational psychology from an Ivy League university, they were good at their jobs. So they were promoted. So how are they gonna have the understanding that they need to help transition their employees back to the work environment that really helps them along that transition process? Now, one of the keys behind this is, and I love sharing this with people, is we talk about anxiety and fear, but to help these managers get their employees to those positions, they need to know the difference. See, anxiety, means that there's something wrong and we just don't really know what it is. So everything is a threat because we perceive some kind of threat to ourselves. The next level is fear. Fear means we know exactly what the problem is. So let's talk about hiking. You're hiking and you have anxiety, you might run into a snake. So you wear a different kind of shoes in case you might run into that snake. Depends fear on the snake, walk, right? <laughs> fear is you're on that hiking path and you see a snake right in front of you. And so what we need to do is help transition our employees from having that anxiety to having fear. In other words, we have to identify that fear object for them because we can do something about fear. We can help alleviate fear. We can overcome fear. We can't do anything with anxiety. So it's kind of if you were to focus on the employees and maybe bring them in the conversation and say, you know, we're thinking about bringing people back to the office and we want to know what's keeping you awake at night. What are you worried about? What's the anxiety? And then you take that anxiety and then address it like a fear. Say, okay, if this is a real perceived anxiety, 
how would we assuage it? Or you're just saying meet it head on? You're exactly right, Brian. And we can guess what their issues might be, but we don't know until we talk to them. And so starting to identify their concerns about coming back to work and, and maybe some levels of anxiety, but maybe what they potentially fear when it comes to coming back to work, that way we can address it or we can alleviate it or we can do something as a result of that. We have a lot of clients that will issue surveys and surveys are only as good as the, you know, the questions that are asked and then, you know, people might not be able to tap into something deeper in order to answer a specific survey question. So in your experience, how have you helped coach management to be able to get direct feedback, really solid information from employees about what's going to make their work that much better? Have you, have you had to go down that road? Absolutely. So when you do a survey in an organization, what you typically expect is about 19 to 20% response rate. If you can imagine that subset of the organization, those are the people that are either going to be really happy or really upset that really have a voice to want to say something. One of the things that work really well on this, and it helps create more accountability, is the surveys at the managerial level. So the managers respond to the survey based on conversations they have with their people during their meeting. So being able to start uncovering that, and it's giving a coaching point for those managers to talk to the people and have these open dialogues. But the manager is the one that reports back the findings on the kind of not one through five like art scale kind of surveys, but more qualitative where they have to input some more information where we can gather that information up. So it's more of a focus group approach backed by surveys that gives the managers a chance to coach with their people. In our design process, we try to get input from every level of an organization and try to solicit as much feedback, as much participation. And every organization is trying to create an authentic, inspiring workplace, something that really reflects the culture. I'd love your take you know, from the, the psychological standpoint of that design. What's going to help people kind of overcome those fears when they start to come back to the office or as organizations try to bring more and more people back to the office, hopefully in a post-pandemic, uh, post-vaccine world. How can designers think about space differently? And how can we think about making sure that, that those spaces are inspiring? What are those needs that have to be met? So when we're thinking about returning to the workplace and the, the kind of interactions that we're gonna have, the, the old saying is true. Seeing is believing. People are gonna to have to see things before they believe it. And the difference is the difference between those two parts, the brains that I talked about before. The primal brain, which has control of 95% of our life, believe it or not, or the cerebral brain, which is only an act about 5% of the time. So what we have to do is we have to convince that primal part of the brain that we have done these things and we're taking care of you and we're creating that safety and that survival for you. But that part of the brain doesn't believe in email. It doesn't believe something that it's told necessarily. It has to see it. That's why earlier I mentioned the gamification, some kind of approach where when the employees come back to work, they have to discover and see for themselves why it's so important that they're doing what they're doing as an organization. You just say that phrase, that part of the brain doesn't believe in email, just awoke apart. I feel like I just had a moment of self-awareness because there is that component that I need to understand what the safety measures are and see them enacted in order to feel safe. You can't just write it down and make me feel safe. 
No, in fact, when I had to do a readability study for emails with an organization who said, we read our emails all the time. The readability study came out to show what percentage of the people do you think read their emails? Take a guess. I'm going to go 16% because, you know, I'm pessimistic. That sounds high. <laughs> I was going to go, I was going to say nine. <laughs> well, it's actually right there in the middle. Good job, guys. It's 13% read their email. However, only 8% cared to get additional information by clicking the link. Now, keep in mind that this was a organization. Uh, it was a governmental organization that says we read our email all the time. That's amazing. You know, I, Chris, you were the highest without going over. So I think you won that round. Um, price is right rules. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're going with prices. I, and that does trend with only 13% read the information and even smaller percentage of that are looking for additional information, right? So follow up. And that's then those amazing. are the people that control your rumor mill. Wow. Yes. So I'm glad you, you brought up that because about influence within the organization. One thing that we're being asked to, to do for a lot of our clients is to help stand up pilots so that something can be tested. A lot of organizations, the leading organizations right now are not sitting still. They're not putting their heads in the sand. They are actively testing some things because they think that if they can test something and move the needle just a little bit, it's going to help with productivity, maybe some innovation. How important is it to get people through some pilots and create that rumor mill or create that sphere of influence? Like you, you've got this body of people who now have seen it, maybe tried it, they believe it. How important is it for organizational progress to do something like that? It's amazing on how many clients I work with where I have to convince them that they need to do this. It's important that we do some kind of pilot because that pilot will give you things like metrics. We improved by this percent. We saved this many hours. We reduced this many steps, which gives you that success stories that help sell what we're doing to the people that are up next. Not only that, we're creating champions of, of the work that we've done. We've created our own success stories that can be shared amongst the peers, not coming from an email from the vice president in charge of everything, which may or may not be believable. So we're creating a great network and a foundation. We're saying this is important. This is why it's important. Talk to your people that have been through this. And to your point before, it's part of stories. You know, So once you experience it, it becomes part of your story. Is that a fair assessment? Exactly. We're creating that, that initial change journey story of the change that we're trying to implement or that we're trying to do. Do you have a certain profile that you look for, whether it's at the management level, leadership level, or at the user level to you know, select the right people to go through a pilot? Are there characteristics that those people kind of embody? The kind of people that you select for a pilot have to be engaged. Now, I'm not looking for people that are positive or negative or, or the ones that are always trying to start rumors or the people that are always on the front end trying to make things positive. I'm looking for people that are willing to engage and share their experiences because even the, the negative people are going to give you ways of improving your project even more through their criticism. Yeah, I found that to be true. It's not necessarily the cheerleaders. You want a little bit of that creative conflict, somebody that might disagree a little bit or be a little pessimistic because they're going to improve the end result. They've got real fear attached to that resistance sometimes. Well, in fact, if you look at it from the neurological perspective, if you come out with messages all the time that are rainbows and butterflies, 
they're going to be dismissed because they're not realistic. You have to have some reverse side to that of saying, here's some great things we found. Here's some potential things that we found that weren't so great because it makes it seem more believable to the person. It's kind of the, if you think about it, it's the pratfall effect, which is a psychological phenomenon. We all have seen these great romantic comedy movies. And usually one of the main characters romantic comedy is either a goofball or they're very clumsy or they don't have their stuff together, but that's what makes them so endearing and lovable. We need to think about that when we're doing our messaging behind this, uh, these kind of changes is we've got to make them more endearing and lovable, make them a little, we're not exactly perfect yet. Vulnerable. They've got to be a yes. little vulnerable. So I want to make sure we hit all the high points that you guys wanted to talk about. And I think it's been pretty fascinating so far because I know, you know, we've hit the psychological needs and neurological needs. We were, we're going to talk a little bit about user experience and workplace experience, like UX and WX and how these relate to what we're talking about now. What are those and how can they help? Yeah, there, there are a lot of elements that, that go into user experience. Whatever solutions created to elicit a great experience has to be, you know, viable. It's got to be feasible and it's got to be desirable. One of the things that I wanted to make sure that, that we touched upon was no matter what kind of changes organizations make to their real estate, their portfolio, their, their physical environment, I think there has to be a level of delight and surprise when people come back to the office they they're going to want to know what's changed they're they're going to see that their organization is is being authentic and that they are working hard to drive culture we all know that an organization's culture lives in its space and i'm glad dustin talked about tribes and talked about community to steal a little bit from patrick donnelly one of our partners he wrote an article early on in the pandemic about the need to create this type of community. Think about all of us as human beings since, since the dawn of man, we've been creating these spaces to enable us to, to connect and to come together. Think about the most successful and memorable social spaces that you've ever encountered in your life. You know, what makes some of those neighborhoods really work? What makes some of those spaces work? Some fall flat just because they don't have that inspirational element. They don't trigger something in the brain. That's what I kind of what I wanted to get to today. It's a result of that community experience. So when people are coming back to the office, has the organization really thought about what they want that organizational community experience to be? And I think that they do it and they do it right. They have an opportunity to kind of propel themselves in the market leapfrog their competition, drive innovation, and create more revenue for, for the stakeholders. So that's why it's important to worry about your employees and their experience in the workplace and what their physical needs and psychological needs are. So this has probably been one of the most educational podcasts we've had. So this has been deeply informative, I know for myself personally. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? Oh, thank you, Brian. I'm just glad that, that Dustin was here to kind of help us make some sense of what all of us are, are experiencing from a neurological standpoint. And again, it reinforces our need as a, a firm to continually think about how space is impacting the perceptions and the emotions of the people that we're designing for. And 
really getting alignment with our clients around what those spaces need to deliver from an experience standpoint and understand a little bit more about how those spaces impact the brain. Thanks, Chris. Dustin, any other final wisdom you'd like to impart on us before you depart? (laughs) Well, there's a ton of other wisdom I'd love to share, but I'll kind of leave you with this. One of the important takeaways here is that at the neurological level, we're all tribal-based creatures of habit. Even though our teams are remote, we need to treat them as a tribe and make them feel part of a tribe. Think of it like a marketer. How would a marketer make you feel like part of a tribe? mascots, taglines, slogans, logos, merchandise, something to bring you together. We need to make them feel close to a team because the tribal kinship is what will help smooth that transition when we bring people back into the workplace. So just four brief parts of advice based on our entire conversation uh, when it comes to what's happening right now in the transition back into the workplace is keep meetings short. And if the meeting needs to be long, break up the meeting. We have about 50 minutes of attention span before we lose uh, attention, especially because we don't have others around us. Number two is make sure you check in with the human beings behind that Zoom image that you're looking at. As we talked about earlier, we need those managers to really start identifying what's going on with their people, what biological or learned needs are really being challenged. Number three is, Be creative on how you engage and how you get the blood flowing for that person sitting behind the desk. One of my favorite things is I had a phone call with a client and I told them, let's both be outside going for a walk while we have this conversation. And number four, if you're not doing it already, start working on establishing that tribal mentality. Make people feel like they're part of something. Bring back that purpose. Help reestablish that connectedness and that kinship to other people as much as possible because that's what's going to help in the transition the most. Dustin, that was magnificent. Thank you for sharing that. I especially like the parts about keeping meetings short. I do understand the need to connect to tribe very much, and that's a topic we've been addressing. You know, How do you build that sense of community in a distributed environment? Those are all fantastic suggestions. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions presented by BHDP for this episode, Bridging Our Eight Basic Needs with the Workplace with Dr. Dustin Jackson, an organizational psychologist, and Chris Lapata, a BHDP workplace client leader. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I'm Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.